we're recording a we're, an episode of Ghoul School. Ghoul School is happening live right now. Yeah, right now. It's not live, but, you, but it. you're here for it, man. Wow. Can I be in it? Hey, hey, everyone. Where well, This is live happening right You're all listening to me talk right now. It's me, Andy. Andy Sell. I don't know how to begin these things. I'm not good at that. Uh, hi. <laughs> it's me, Andy. I don't know if you were expecting to hear somebody else, but it's uh, if you've never listened to this podcast before. Hi, I'm Andy. Uh, I introduce myself in every one of these. It's a thing we're supposed to do as podcasters, I suppose. I just feel, I feel like a jerk now. Anyway, welcome back to Ghoul School, a horror history podcast. This is, again, yes, this is not the final episode of season one. It is not the final episode of the found footage semester. You might notice that it's April 1st when this episode went up. Uh, this wasn't a gag. I wasn't trying to prank anybody into thinking I finished the first season. This is another one of those extra dreaded episodes. This is another bonus. It's not a bonus because I'm not doing bonus content yet. Nothing is behind a paywall at this point. We'll see about getting there if, you know, not to bum everybody out, but if things ever get back to normal, we'll maybe start doing that. But not today. This is Extra Dreadit number two, in which we talk about, look, we're doing this a little differently. We're turning the table upside down. Look, the world is upside down. This podcast is upside down. First of all, the first seven minutes of the conversation that was recorded for it, uh, unusable. Just some audio recording gremlins at work, and the whole thing... Seven minutes unusable. So I'm going to catch you up on the beginning of this conversation and then drop you right into it. But first, I want to acknowledge, I want to thank you first, I guess, first of all, let's, hey, thanks for listening. Please rate and review if you feel so inclined. That does help us. But also, yeah, thanks. It it means a lot that there are people that uh, listen to this. Even that sounds a little narcissistic to me to say, to say out loud. Can you tell I'm from the Midwest? Anyway. Uh, I'm not spiraling, I promise. Today's episode, if you've not listened to the Extra Dreadit, I recommend you go back and listen to the first Extra Dreadit episode with Kevin Anderson, where we talk about Cabin in the Woods and Waxwork. The basic premise of these is that I ask someone who's either had me on a podcast or someone that's a friend of mine that's uh, uh, in the world, in the genre in some way, and ask them to pick a horror movie that they want to talk about, and then I recommend a movie that they have not seen to watch in a double feature with that movie, and then we discuss it. And for today's episode, our guest is my good friend Dan Ast. He does not have a podcast, but in a way he does. Dan is actually, I want to acknowledge him specifically here in this space because he is the reason I'm recording now. Dan uh, has helped. He's a fan of the show. Uh, he's a friend of mine and he's a helpful soul. And he's the reason I have an H6 Zoom 
uh, recorder and audio interface to do this with. Uh, also, thanks to John Veron, who's previous generosity helped record a lot of the the first episodes of this show uh, were recorded because he had equipment and that's thanks to John Veron who was also who was also the uh, producer of my previous podcast people we know very long time ago anyway so thanks John for letting me use your equipment and thanks Dan for providing equipment for us currently. Anyway, Dan is a writer and director and editor. He is a filmmaker, a film fan. I uh, He's a good buddy of mine. I go to see movies with him a lot. We discuss a lot of movies together. We uh, give each other notes on work, etc. He's the writer and director of the feature film Claire, which maybe by the time you're listening to this should be streaming possibly on Amazon Prime. So if you are a Prime subscriber, go ahead and watch Claire. He also is responsible for the television series L.A. Macabre, which will get a mention in the final episode of season one. It it will be done at some point. At some point, I will finish that episode. Anyway, L.A. Macabre is a wonderful series. It's it's just really great. And maybe on a streaming service sometime soonish. Now, because this episode is a little weird for a lot of reasons, one of the reasons is we did things differently. We watched the film I recommended first and then watched the film that Dan originally chose. So we did it backwards. And as a result, the conversation we had was backwards. So you will not find the title of the movie Dan chose in the information for this episode because the conversation kind of sort of turned into a little game of like, can you guess what movie Dan chose? Because I think uh, this was the wrong call, the movie that I paired with his. Uh, in fact, I have a, I made while watching the first movie, knowing the movie Dan chose, I m- ended up making a list of movies that would pair with it better than the one Dan chose. And I make some references to that. So maybe try to guess if you can, the movie Dan chose. And because Dan's a good sport, he actually found it interesting that the double feature was maybe a little bit off. And we will actually, absolutely, I will be having Dan back to do another episode of this show and see if I can pick something that's a little closer to the mark. So yes, I will not be foregrounding the movie Dan chose, but I will give you this hint for it. He does think it would pair well with the next movie he chooses for an extra dreaded assignment. But that's not really much of a hint because you don't know what that movie is either. The movie that I chose to pair with Dan's choice is 1981's Fear No Evil. It is a gothic Catholic exploitation hybrid with high school bullying, zombies, demonic possession, kind of a queer undercurrent, and a lot of good versus evil religious stuff. At the beginning of this conversation, Dan pointed out that the movie actually features as characters morally uncompromised angels in this presentation of good versus evil. We also kind of point out a few times that the movie is never really quite clear with what it's trying to say, and we don't know if that's on purpose, but it sort of stumbles into complexity and nuance. At some point in the conversation, I champion the movie Bloodhook. Dan asks for a little background on the film, and that's where we're cutting in. You see, Fear No Evil was made in 1978, 
by Frank Laloja. Frank Laloja was only 25 years old at the time, and he shot this movie in and around his hometown of Rochester, New York. And now we're going to sort of just drop into the conversation between me and Dan Ast about 1981's Fear No Evil. And then the movie that Dan chose. said it was based around the location so was this like he lives in this town he keeps floating by this place every once in a while like goes to the family for some money and like wants to make his first movie like what what is the kind of background on where this strange movie came from so i actually this is one of the few times that i didn't do a ton of research i had intended to and then i didn't i haven't watched it with the commentary yet and i really want to but i mean definitely he had some family money in this because he was i think 26 25 or 26 when he made this movie wait wasn't that my guess when we were watching it yeah yeah it was feels like a 25 year old. yeah yeah (laughs) yeah you know he's got family names in the credits yeah uh, in like producer credits and such so it's like Okay. And he's got like an uncle or a cousin in the bar scene? Or... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was Charles Lelogia, who is Frank Lelogia's cousin. Okay. He's a producer. And he discovered this... The movie opens in this filming location in, in uh, with this really... The film movie opens with this really great gothic scene of this priest who is actually possessed is that the word you use when it's an angel i don't know are they possessed by angels or are, are they, they just taking kind of the like, form of humans yeah, that already they existed feel like angels incarnate yeah you know it's like, like the physical embodiment of angels but they have regular human names and they're reborn and, and they're they have re- to find each other yeah. and create some triumvirate or something yeah there's like a whole weird reincarnation thing at work there that like never really in, well i guess it kind of half gets explored with like the yeah. youngest member being like 17 yeah. now like she's she's a high school student <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so it opens with this guy it feels like the ending of a, of another movie you get this whole exposition about the angels and their story and the devils and it's like it's your war in heaven shit it's your typical like lucifer was cast down and michael and Raphael and gabriel had to go find him and get him right and so there's this like big battle between this angel priest guy and lucifer and by big battle he like chases him until he runs out of breath and then he like points a staff at him yeah well and, the, not before he's tempted oh and that really nice edit where the guy that was a nice edit yeah i did appreciate how simple that was he's he's standing as a dude he falls to his knees as a woman and tries to tempt the angel priest and it was just a very simple mm-hmm. you know very effective like i don't think you should have done it any differently than that. So I I kind of admired that right away. So this whole thing happens in this filming location in Alexandria Bay, New York, called Bolt Castle. And they really use this... (laughs) There's like a scene later in the movie where there's like a tour guide giving a tour of the place yeah. from a boat. And they incorporate it nicely into the narrative because it's not just like, it's not like a Charles Pierce thing where it's like there's voiceover of the location and then it has nothing to do with the story. No, like the guy who turns out to be Lucifer is like watching menacingly yeah. from the from the thing, like get these tourists out of my home or whatever. Right. And it's nice. That's why the movie exists is because of this this castle in Alexandria Bay, New York, where Charles uh, Lelogia saw it and was like, we got to do a movie. And then cousin told Frank his cousin Frank, like, "Sure, hey, come up with something for a horror movie for here. We should all be so lucky. Yeah, I've done that once. 
Oh, yeah? Yeah, I was given an assignment to write a, a horror treatment for a location. And what I turned in, probably as ambitious as Fear No Evil... Yeah, but also there was no way it was going to happen. <laughs> I mean, when I was Money wise. when I was you know a kid uh, trying to make stuff in my backyard, I had a big creepy barn in my backyard. Everything was written to take place in this big creepy barn. There you go. You know, like when you when you've got it there, we should all be so lucky to be related to somebody who is like, hey, sure, I'll give you eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, here to we go. <laughs> make a weird movie, but you know. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice, but you know, we don't all we're not all as blessed as Frank, Lelosia. <laughs> So that's where that's sort of where the how the movie came about, and yeah, he was young when he did it, and I got it. He's got some Catholic stuff going on with him, and I don't know if it's like because it's not Hellraiser level. It's, it's not Clive Barker like being fuck the reli- fuck religion, no, fuck no, the church. It's very pro Catholicism from the looks of it. Yeah, like, but it seems very reverent of. Yeah. The battle for good and evil, you mm-hmm. know, like in Catholicism, it doesn't seem to be subverting anything I mean, there, on that conversation. There is kind of, um, there are some jabs thrown at the pageantry Yes, of it. There are some jabs thrown at church leadership because there's the one priest who's in charge of things that doesn't believe in any of this right. angel reincarnation stuff. But he turns out to be wrong. He's wrong. And yeah. that's the whole thing is he's he's sort of like the, the head of the hospital in uh nightmare on elm street three. Oh yeah yeah you know yeah. the one that's like but that woman i think in nightmare on elm street three she's a little more like you can see uh, she cares she's doing this because she cares she's not a bad person right right and i don't know how much of that is is in the priest in this movie well this goes back to what you were saying we're like it's hard to it's hard to nail down what this movie wants to say yeah you know it's never clear but but like it did strike me as very kind of good-hearted in in its kind of view of good versus evil in Catholicism, like like the angels are good and good to one another and, you know, good to others and evil is evil and any ambiguity kind of exists in the movie outside of that setup. Yeah. You know? There's like, also maybe kind of a commentary on bureaucracy in that the angels don't really seem to accomplish a whole lot and they can't like you know they go 20 years without being able to find each other and then when two of them find each other they like they spend so much time knowing what's going on they spend so much time trying to like get people on their side or you know figure out what to do that like while this is happening lucifer is just fucking things up Right. Like, they can't do anything because there's all this red tape. They got to do everything by committee. So are we talking, like, so, so, so this is the problem with, like, like over-regulation? Or, <laughs> maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe, like- maybe. Maybe Frank Lelogia is saying we need a dictator. I don't know. <laughs> What's happening? Uh, I just don't think that Frank Lelogia knows what he's saying most of the no, time. You no, know? I like, think. I mean, the mo- I think it's it's about trying to cram as much story as you can, yeah, and as many themes as you can, yeah, and trying to do it well and aesthetically well. And it, I think in that way he succeeds. There are some really fun sequences and really fun moments in there where. When it's being a horror movie, because it's not always being a horror movie. Like sometimes it's just kind no. of a very, you know, yeah. like that's why like there's something very kind of sweet and beautific and awkward about, you know, the old woman angel hanging out with the young woman angel and mm-hmm. like uh, a lot of that stuff. But when it decides to be a horror movie, it's got some fun, brutal stuff in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That you kind of wish it would do more often, you know, because it doesn't, it feels, I don't want to say it feels all over the place. It's just that it's, it's kind of jumping around in terms of, uh, 
genre sometimes. Well, it's jumping around in terms of genre. It's jumping around in terms of themes. It never does the thing where it puts all of its scare eggs in the horror basket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it, it never really is like... Horror works a lot of times best when it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Because that's when you can have sort of this totality of intent with your sensory details, with your themes, with your all the technique of it, where it's all pushing in that direction to scare. And this movie, it never knows... It might where be, that is. Yeah, it might be a little too ambitious with its ideas for yeah. its own good, yeah. you know? And I think that's what happens when you try and boil down. I think I've been guilty of this when I was writing things when I was younger, but like I think that's what happens when you kind of boil down the battle between God and Satan, you know, yeah. good and evil, angels and whatever, like, and demons. When you When you try and boil that down to, like, humans fighting in... A castle in upstate mm-hmm. New York or in the woods or wherever you are going to be reaching for a lot and oversimplifying a lot and reducing a fairly large cosmic yeah you know setting or a cosmic battle to very small ripples in a pond I don't know it doesn't feel like you can really reach those heights yeah you, you can't know, do at the a slasher movie level yeah you know it's not a slasher movie but like it can't do the omen at least the omen is simple mm-hmm. in terms of you've got a kid growing up, he's not capable of much, so the universe has to destroy whatever threats kind of... The Omen, which, by the way, is uh, on my list of movies that would pair better with this than, <laughs> than the one that I recommended it for. Yeah, there's definitely a very clear Omen vibe. Yeah. To be, and that's because, you know, one of your characters is the Antichrist. You know, so or, let's talk or, about him for a minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so there, there's a Lucifer that these angels are hunting. And he is a boy named Andrew John Williams? I don't know. (laughs) I think it's Andrew John Williams. Nobody ever calls him AJ, which is weird to me. Because it's the early 80s. AJ, I feel like it was a popular name then. Nope, it's just Andrew or Andrew John. Yeah. So he's our Lucifer. And we find this out because, man, the first 12 minutes of this movie covers the war in heaven and the fallout from that. And then 18 years. Yeah. And I really love the way they do the 18 years with the shot of the house and the dissolves between just to as show the house time falls passing. further into disrepair with voiceovers voice like of the, the parents arguing. Yeah, yes. their marriage falling apart yeah. because of this kid. Because of this evil fucking kid yeah. who was born apparently the moment that the priest was killing Lucifer. There's another thing too, though. The priest who kills him goes to prison for murder. And that's the thing too about this movie's idea of, it does that thing where it reaches out to like implications in the real world. Yeah. By definitely like foregrounding the fact that this is a world that has police yep. and law enforcement and consequences and, and authorities and mayors. There's a, I think a mayor or is it, he's either the mayor or he's like a councilman or a something. Councilman or he's, something. He's very much doing the Jaws mayor. He's definitely the Jaws mayor. Yeah. There's a whole Jaws thing in this movie, too, that we'll, I'm sure we'll get to. But it's it's a movie that, yeah, it kind of further muddies the water well, by being like, yeah, there's cops here. In terms of all the things, and you and I were like kind of acknowledging this while we were watching it, and to the extent that it pairs with all of these other movies, it doesn't pair with any of them in a, in a really solid way. It yeah. nods at a lot of I things. I think there's like, two movies that it pairs with in a very solid way. Well, well in so much as like it, it, like, you know, that it's doing a Jaws thing. It does a Jaws thing for two shots. Yeah. yeah you know, it's it, for like a, a conversation, a little bit, a scene. Yeah. It's not doing a Jaws thing throughout. It's, you want it to be doing some sort of like, well, I, Catholicism I, is the shark is the way oh, you have to look off. at it. <laughs> 
<laughs> but like you know when it's doing like the high school thing you know it, yeah. it does the high school thing for like an act like the first act you know it yeah. doesn't really stick with a lot of it it um, brings a lot of it back without much of a payoff which yeah, is interesting like, because then there's yeah because then there's a zombie thing there's a zombie thing there's a Carrie thing yeah there's See, a, that's Carrie is one of the movies that I would pair with it yeah that I think and, it pairs with solid you know and it, and it pairs there decently for like part of the first act and for like a shower scene yeah you know and then it kind of stops you know it, it doesn't really couple indefinitely with too many things but i see how we kind of got to mm-hmm. all of these other like it kind of does this for a bit and this for that and this for a bit and this for a bit but it never it probably only sticks with one or two other movies for an extended period of time yeah you know yeah and i, th- I mean i think some of those you can stretch enough so that they're you know and without going too far and then some of them like i, I mentioned uh, coppola's dracula at one point right but that's really just because of there's some like really impressive like low-key in camera yeah at this point we might be supernatural things over utilizing our own affinity for other films to like tack on to this film yeah and this film I don't think earns as many of those comparisons as as really as you know fair it's it's also very unique Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah I guess you know because it, it casts such a wide net in terms of its own inspirations or its own things that it's trying to do yeah you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it welcomes a lot of other... And because it's very clear with its... Or very unclear, I should say, sorry, with its themes in its narrative. Like, okay, for example, you never really are sure... It takes you a while to be sure that Andrew John knows he's Lucifer. Right. Because there's there's some there's some really good stuff in his performance early on that's like, oh man, he's, like, he's just a weird kid who doesn't know he's this Lucifer guy. And then he goes and does, like, the very arch, very, like villain ah my lair you know right and it's like oh shit he knows well then what was this all about but then later on he shows remorse about doing lucifer things right and he shows like hesitation about doing lucifer things and it's kind of like so where what are the rules here like how often does he know he's lucifer is is it is it like lucifer's got the wheel sometimes and then he can take it back and then uh, uh, what's it's never explored it's never really explored but I also kind of like that because, I mean, let's be honest, if you were to give exposition to that idea, that's another 20 minutes tacked onto this movie. Right, right. Um, and not that it's an overlong movie by any means, it's just like... But it also doesn't need to be any longer. It's already overstuffed at yeah. the very least. Yeah. So... I mean, you know, but the first scene we get to with this guy, he watches his mother and father fight until she hits her head and falls into a coma and he does absolutely nothing. Yeah. He just sits there and stares, you know, with yeah. like a blank expression. So yeah, even, you know, the question of uh, does he know he's evil or does he not? It could also be met with does he care? Does he care? Yeah, yeah. he doesn't seem to a lot of the time, but he is a lot of fun. He is so much fun. When he embraces yeah. it at the end and he basically becomes like Oh god, yeah. glam rock, Azrael Abyss, he's like glam, he's goth, he's fierce, he's, he's just like He's got a cape and he raises his arms like bat yeah. wings. Yeah. You know. Which I will say that that's a connection I make between this and the film you chose. Yeah, yeah, I can see is that there's a gendered performance. And in this case it's like a gender fuck like draggy thing yeah yeah and yours it's it's drag and as as far as it's overplaying a gender uh gender tropes yeah yeah it kind of moves from uh without without giving too much away like it definitely moves into a style shift you know it affects this character's personality and the way they dress Mm -hmm. and the way they and the way they present themselves and the way that they whatever this thing is they've made a pact with yeah you know the way they choose to uh celebrate or or utilize that 
for their own gain or whether or not they have any choice in it at all and might just be completely under the spell of this supernatural yeah. entity. There's conversation the, the on either side The Lucifer character in Fear No Evil was one of the first times where I was like, okay, I see this as the connection between my film that we're yeah. going to talk about yeah. and, and why you chose this one because this character visually has some similarities, mm -hmm. but also yeah. in terms of a journey, while, while it's a little less clear, as you said, when they yeah. know what and when they've embraced what they are. Uh, but there's a similar arc. There's a, there's a very similar arc that's much easier to read. And so that was one of the things that I was like, okay, I see this. Yeah. Also in a lot of the high school stuff. Yeah. You know, saw some of that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know. you've, and you got a guy long haired, quasi greaser, maybe pothead, uh, right. like bully character who's too old to be at the school. Yep. Yep. Uh, in both of them as well. It's, yep. it, it's almost like an analog there, except I think he smokes weed in Fear No Evil and he does not smoke weed in right, right. your movie. He would probably not like the idea of smoking weed in no. my movie for some reason. And in, and in Fear No Evil, he's like, that, there's like a whole thing of like, wait, this guy's in love with the other guy. <laughs> like, that was a, that was, is that what's happening can here? We, yeah, can we like get onto that? Let's talk about I the shower scene. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't <laughs> think that we can like, like acknowledge that this movie has a really interesting and strong queer subtext mm -hmm. and not take a moment to talk about no. the shower scene here. And if you're thinking uh, that the movie that Dan chose was Nightmare on Elm Street 2, you're wrong. You're out. But that is on the list. So that if anyone says Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is their movie, this is the movie that's getting paired with it. Yeah, this could pair with that, you know, at this level particularly. Yeah. But that was an interesting scene because I, I guess the bully threatens to kiss the Lucifer character who's yeah. kind of comes like the first we have of all the, the we Lucifer character is like this meek mm -hmm. kind of you know not very muscular yeah. kind of a skinny beanpole type he's like dream Jesse in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 at the beginning of Nightmare on Elm yeah. Street 2 where we, we are introduced to Jesse yep. who's, he's a completely different Jesse than the real world Jesse yeah yeah uh, the but, kind of solo you know yeah, like like mm -hmm. uh, looks like an sunken in, like, eyes, looks like an incel yeah. like <laughs> like in, and not like the politically active incel you know what I mean right. like he looks like just the guy that's just like this is who I am yeah you yeah. know I, I, like every facial expression is an apology yeah like he looks like that he's yeah. just this meek wet-haired, like, goofy-looking, pale, you know, scrawny. No fat, no muscle on him, yeah. you know. But, yeah, and so, like, what the bully kind of is threatening to kiss him. Well, there are, it's a bunch of dudes in the shower, mm -hmm. and... The, and and the movie does not, is not shy about, about male, male nudity. Yeah, it's, which, which you know, it's like, it's like the reverse carry. I kind of applaud mm -hmm. its willingness to do that. Yeah, but it, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he threatens to kiss him as a as a as a bullying. Well, tactic? it starts out with him and two of the other guys at least uh, catcalling Andrew. Okay, they're like, "You're looking pretty sexy over there." Like, right, right. Like they're straight up catcalling. Like it's yeah. it's harassment yeah. <laughs> in the shower, and it feels sarcastic. Like you, I mean, you know that, that okay, these are high school boys in 1981. This, this is, is sarcastic. Yeah, this is not the part that that is throwing me off. No, the part know? is when he says. The main guy, the main bully's interest turns from trying to make him feel bad into maybe genuine desire. Yeah, it, it's it, and the funny thing is, like, that's not even like a, a reach in the read there. No, you know, like the, it's a really confusing approach in the scene mm -hmm. because it really does feel like it makes that shift, but doesn't to the extent that it commits to it. It's hard to say, you know, yeah, because like, it's again, it's 
it's it's a complex issue so maybe the awkwardness and clumsiness of the scene itself lends to that complexity yeah 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 and and so he does kiss him yeah he kisses him and then like it's uh such a supernaturally intense kiss that it really <laughs> fucks with the bully yeah but they don't break away from each other and you can't like at first it they have to be pulled apart yeah they have to be pulled apart and and the way they played at the end, the bully seems to have been trying to pull away but couldn't. Yeah. But then he tells one of his friends, "I'll kill you if you tell anyone about yeah, this." Yeah, it was a really. St- but but the but you know like even outside of of whatever the read is, I gotta give it credit for just having that scene. That's just kind of an interesting, yeah. weird, yeah. cool scene to be no throwing around in nineteen eighty one. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was pretty. That was a pretty interesting scene. Like, it, it caught my attention mm-hmm. in terms of being pretty interesting and, I don't know, progressive or transgressive or however you want to look at it yeah. at the time. Yeah. Um, Again, it's hard to say, like most things in this movie. Yeah, if and it had a clearer you, point of yeah. view, it would help. And when you put it in the context of all of this weird Catholic angel mythology and yeah. all of the, you know, what are we saying about the church? What are we saying about the passion play? Right. Uh, the, and then, and then Lucifer's whole drag glam goth aesthetic at the end, where he's also just having a fucking ball. Like, oh yeah. And you're like, wait, maybe Lucifer's right. You know? Like, yeah. Like, because jealousy is a big thing in this movie, and jealousy is a big thing in you know in the the story of Lucifer itself. Yeah. Like it's like I guess what's like you know like the three or four sentence rundown of like just this movie as a whole, so people kind of know where it starts and where it goes. Like you got three angels mm-hmm. and Lucifer. And they all kind of live normal human lifetimes until, you know, they meet and end somehow. Yeah. Every one of those reincarnated confrontations is about a generation yeah, or so. something. And they always kind of have to fight e- find each other and fight one another. And mm-hmm. however that ends, it's almost like they, they talk about it like it's going to come to a head. But it feels like it's more like a cycle that they're going to play out. Yeah, and, it's... And this is just a cycle where Lucifer and one of the angels happen to be about the same age mm-hmm. and they replay it in this part of New York. Yeah, in what, Rochester or, yeah, or wherever. There. And then, uh, and so Lucifer spends the movie, I guess let's just give it enough credit to say coming to the realization of who and what he is and embracing it mm-hmm. and kind of having these uh, more overt supernatural uh, moments where he's able to kill the people that yeah. have it's angered some really him. really good the dodgeball the dodgeball there's the dodgeball there's the uh, fuck all I can remember right now is the dodgeball scene I mean like that's the most overt <laughs> no there's you know yeah and then and so he's I guess he's got to perform some sort of ritual on in this castle on this island you're not really sure what it is or what it's supposed to accomplish but he's got to sacrifice someone he's got to sacrifice a certain amount of people i think um and he uses the passion play to do that with there's a passion play yeah there's a passion play happening on the beach yes nearby yes that's which that's (laughs) seems to be a total coincidence but it makes for a lot of fun fucked up parallels yeah you know oh my god because they cut from you know the last supper scene to Zombies on the beach. Yeah, that he's and summoned, it's, and it's like, oh wow. He, so he summons uh, so these is, Are they saying Catholics are zombies? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So he like he likes. I mean, he he very well may be. I, I would give it enough credit to say that. But mm-hmm. like he, so he summons the zombie army outside of his castle 
for whatever purpose, I don't know what, I guess to defend him long enough to do what he needs to do. Mm-hmm. Although what he needs to do is still kind of unclear, even at the end of the film. And then while he's conducting this evil in his castle, the passion play starts to go horribly wrong. Yeah, and we get actual stigmata happening. To the people in the passion play, which yeah. is... And the audience. Like, it's yeah. not, it's kind of indiscriminate. It's yeah. like, the guy playing Jesus has stigmata right. happen to him, and, and it's really cool. Yep. Uh, and the two guys playing the, the thieves, you know, they, like... They kind of get away, right? Yeah, like, there's not, like, one of them's, like, on the cross, like, like, get me the fuck off of this. And then, like, what, a dozen people and like, in a, the Yeah, audience? a handful of people in the audience start getting it, too. It was a really fun, cool idea. It was one of those things where, like, you kind of wish it had been, I don't want to say explained, but, like, uh, I, I guess... You you wish that it had been more directly a part of the story mm-hmm. so that you understood why it was happening. Because it's a really fun idea to watch a passion play just go to, you know, yeah. the worst possible yeah. place while it's happening. Yeah. I guess because evil's being conducted nearby and nobody knows it. Yeah. It's, it's just a consequence <laughs> of, you know, a Catholic evil happening near. Yeah, it's just because it happens to be in the same area as it, Lucifer's castle. Yeah, it creates for a really fun, weird set piece that I don't quite know how to make sense of but i'm glad it's there well and that's that's the thing i kind of love about the ending of this movie too is that there's all of these weird like it it it, like you said earlier it drops a lot of things but it still follows them you know like it doesn't it doesn't tie anything up really except for what happens with the angels and lucifer other than that it doesn't tie them up but it keeps following them so that you see what's happening. Like, you see what happens with his dad. Right, Who's right. a great character. <laughs> that was... Who's got a whole scene in a bar where he goes up and this guy's complaining about his son, like, taking the car without permission and like, shit. Like, wrecking the car without permission. <laughs> he tells this long story about my kid's the fucking worst and you just see this guy losing his mind and he just starts like, my son's the devil! It's... It's like the ultimate look. Well, you think you got it bad, yeah. pal. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's pretty good. And you see what happens with him, and but then they never follow up on it. Like, he does something huge. And yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but he does something that's like, whoa, that's intense. Yeah. And then, and then that's it. You don't see him again. Yeah, yeah. And it follows what happens with the bully. And it kind of feels that what happens to him, while it is a part of the narrative and it is part of the climax of the movie, there are entire scenes with him that don't make any sense. Right. Because they don't go anywhere. There's a literal Chekhov's gun in this movie. Right, right. Um, however, I will say Chekhov's... Um, what was the other thing we said? There was a... Oh, man. I feel like there was a few. This movie was interesting because some things really stuck with me, but some things are kind of a blur. Because, yeah, because it, it isn't an easy movie to follow if you don't know really what's going on or whether or not it's going to matter later. I mean, but it's also got so much nice details. Yeah. Like the police radio from the, pol- <laughs> from the police boat. Like you hear this... The, what's going on with the radio it's basically telling you what's happening in a scene that you're not watching right right as you watch these two other characters do something and it's like that's genius it doesn't feel, just that layer it doesn't feel like a lazy movie no it feels like um no they have look they have a a, a statue of christ with a cow skull for a head that and turns. the head turns to yeah. look at the camera like that's not lazy no, no nothing this, about this movie is lazy this this movie's not lazy it's it you know to the extent that it doesn't track it's just you know it's because the filmmaker seems green to me you know mm-hmm. like it just strikes me as as uh and i don't mean this as a dismissive way of putting it but just you know general incompetence like still on a learning curve you know so to the extent that things don't track it's not because they weren't trying yeah and again it, it like 
like I like that things don't track because in addition to like you know the complexity stuff we've been discussing it's also like if you look at this as a movie about two teenagers about Andrew John and Julie who is the young is, angel is the right. ga- is Gabriel being a teenager the the, the feelings are big the right. feelings are confusing the feelings are all over the place you feel like you're in a very specific world but one where the rules don't seem to make any sense yeah and that's kind of how it goes here. Like, I love Julie because she's... There's a whole scene. They, again, this is another thing. They devote time to showing that she has problems paying attention in school. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's because she's an angel, I guess. Yeah. But also, I feel like she's got ADD, and I can relate to that. Right, like, there's, right. <laughs> it's just like another wrinkle to this character. And they do a nice thing with her boyfriend, where her boyfriend is yeah. sucks, <laughs> but not in the way that boyfriends in these movies usually suck right right and and uh then they get rid of him so that she gets to kind of like find out who she is i i don't know i kind of like that it all gets muddled in that way yeah i mean i it's one of those movies where you know i'm not sure that it's high on my list of rewatches if i rewatched it i might find more to like about it but on a first watch i found it hard to track yeah because it's kind of all over the place it you know and uh key moments stick out but if i had to describe this movie to somebody i would have a hard time remembering really anything besides it's you know angels and lucifer you know and then it's like all the rest of it is kind of like and then it kind of does passion play and it kind of does jaws and it kind of does carry and it kind of does a high school thing and it kind of yeah. does a small town thing and yeah it's doing a bullying thing but it, it's never it, it doesn't quite commit to any of them but it never writes them off either yeah exactly no exactly you know, like it never it always feels like it's saying this is important and then also this is important and then this other thing is important and it all is important and that yeah that, that <laughs> might be a weird thing where it's like you know having difficulty Maybe the filmmaker, you know, when you're, I guess when you're a young filmmaker as well, like you have a hard time metering Mm -hmm. what's an important scene and what's an important character beat and what isn't. And, you know, what's a nice detail versus what's an important beat, you know? And I wonder if, you know, he was still just kind of figuring out his, uh, his balance on these things. I haven't seen, what is it? Woman in white? Lady Lady in white. white. Lady in white. How is, have you seen it? Yes. I mean, I will say it's been a while since I've seen it, so I can't. Remember it being like a little more even? Well, yeah. is, it, is it more even in terms of uh, kind of balancing these things? Or is it simplicity kind of make it a moot point? I would say it is more even. Again, it's been a lot much longer since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's funny because this is... So Fear No Evil is a movie I've seen now four or five times. Mm-hmm. And I'm the same way, though. Like, I couldn't... Every time I sit down to watch it, I'm like, wait, what is it happens in this again? Right, right. <laughs> and then I watch it and I'm like, and all the scenes hit. And I'm like, oh yeah, that, I remember that. I remember that. Uh, but then like, again, here we are a day after watching it or two days after watching it. And I'm like, I can only remember the dodgeball kill. Right. Like the other right. kills, I fucking couldn't tell you what they are. But I remember them being pretty good. Yeah. Even though I can't remember exactly what they are. Yeah. But also like you reminded me of the dad subplot. It's like, oh yeah, the, oh yeah, the dad does go do some weird shit at the end of that movie that yeah. I'm still not entirely sure I understand. And I, I don't think it plays into any of the other events in any way. No. But it's just like, ah, oh, here we are. And it's kind of like, I, is this a P.T. Anderson? Is this a Robert Altman? What's going on? But it's like he felt the need to uh, to close that loop even if you didn't need to. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. it's yeah. like, oh, okay. I guess. I guess. Yeah. I guess, good, good for you, I guess. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, you just answered a question I wasn't asking, but all right, yeah. you know. And it's, it, and that, that honestly is something that affected its distribution as well. Because Avco Embassy, I guess the whole reason that they picked it up to distribute was because of the zombie stuff. Because zombies... Mm. Zombies were, it was the early 80s, late 70s, you know, and, and it like, was like, there were two things going on, slashers and zombies. Eight minutes worth of this film. Yeah. Got and it's it, not, distribution. It's not a whole lot of the movie, and there are no zombies until the third act. Yeah, and they're not particularly consequential, but they're fun. Not really, yeah. You know, but, but they're, they're, they are fun. They, yeah, oh, there's a fun. great, there's a great scene kind of reminiscent. I mean, I guess this movie is reminiscent of Fear No Evil because it came uh, much later, but Return of the Living Dead 2 mm. with the literally like zombies coming. I remember I love that movie so much because when I was a kid, I saw it and was like, man, the zombies are coming out of the ground. Like, yeah. I never have seen that. Yeah. <laughs> that but I mean, if I had seen Fear No Evil at that age, I would have seen it. And that's really cool, but that's the that's what got the movie distribution. That's why Avco picked it up. And they basically, for all the advertising for it, tried to sell it as a zombie movie. I wonder... Which would have been weird <laughs> to see it in the theater yeah. after being like, oh, it's a zombie movie. Well, or, or renting it on video with the zombie cover. Well, my question then is, uh, and, and you know, given how many ideas are in this movie and how it doesn't always know what to do with all of them mm -hmm. uh it makes me wonder you know if the zombies were always supposed to be in there yeah I, you know I or or if they found out that they could uh get it distributed if they shot yeah. a little bit more zombie stuff because i don't even remember you remind me do any of our main characters end up interacting with these zombies the bully does right don't the bully and his girlfriend Maybe I don't Interact remember with the zombies. I don't it know. Yeah, it just makes me so like the weird. filmmaker side of me starts to wonder yeah. if, if the zombies could have been put in later. I don't think that they were. I think this is me being a little bit of a tinfoil hat guy about it, but I'm just <laughs> curious. You know, um, I feel like I should watch it with the commentary now and then like I would be really curious to hear what what the commentary is on it. Yeah. Like that's how you could get me to watch it again with the commentary. You know, and, I say we do it. Yeah, because I again I had a good time. I yeah. just wouldn't be high on my list of rewatch. <laughs> <laughs> but more insight would make it worthwhile for yeah. sure. So, like, I, wait, what is what else is on your list of like? Right, do you want to like read off your? Yeah, list so of, I'll read off the list because I feel like we've given this movie quite a bit of yeah attention, and I mean, hopefully you've seen it at this point. I mean, we haven't. I, I, we've been careful not to spoil certain things. So, like, yeah, and this is a movie. It's not as obscure as some of the other movies I've paired things with. It, it does have kind of a cult following. It is a title I'd heard before. Yeah. I'd just never seen it. Um, I think Gen Xers saw it on TV or something. You know, okay. and it became like a big, <laughs> or maybe older millennials. You know, like my my people. But yeah, so the other movies, I think we've given this film enough attention that we can move on to the movie that well, well, like, you chose. Well, like, real quick. But like, here's the list. Yeah, give me your list. The list is, uh, so Nightmare on Elm Street 2. These are the ones that pair with Fear No Evil. Yes. These are, the ones that, these are the ones that pair with Fear No Evil, and if these were your guesses, you're wrong. If these were your guesses for dance movie, you're wrong. Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones, Carrie, The Omen, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, Mausoleum, Audrey Rose, Jaws, The Fog, Return of the Living Dead, Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Return of the Living Dead Part 2, and non-horror Over the Edge, uh, Matt Dillon's first movie I don't know directed by John Kaplan. Oh, wow. That is, that is quite a smattering. 
It's yeah. It's look, and again, <laughs> like you said, they don't pair. Not all of these are on equal pairing grounds. Certainly not. No, I can see where like some of it is like you know this is a scene that we're, like we were watching it and we're like wow suddenly we're doing Jaws yeah for yeah. a scene and there is a, there, there's a scene in it that's very much a Halloween reference yeah there's like a full extended uh, steady cam. Oh, yeah, scene. toward the very beginning, right? Yeah, towards the beginning that's like, oh, this is Halloween. You are intentionally nodding to Halloween right which, now. Which is actually, like, when I saw that 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 kind of extended shot toward the beginning, that was one of the things where I was like, oh, if they do, the, if they do this quite a bit in the movie, mm-hmm. then I see why and you chose do, it. And, and then not. I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe they not. But not. that might be another hint for you guys. There's a, you know, kind of a, I don't want to say like a long one but there was just kind of an elegant, unbroken shot toward the beginning. When that, that a lot of my film does yeah, often well, that I and, liked, and I thought it, Andy might have been inspired there. No, I mean, I guess another parallel could have been, this is a deep dig. This actually, now that I really think about it, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Since Halloween came out in 1978, the movie you chose was not made in 1978, but, it but takes, takes place, place in 1978. 1978. And here's the other thing. Uh, Detroit is referenced by name in Fear No Evil. <laughs> Someone brings up the city Has, of Detroit. Are you guys there yet? Have which you, comes into play in your uh, movie. It's not It Follows. By it's the not way. It Follows. Um, it's not. So the, those are all pretty good hints. Yeah. Detroit, gender presentation. Se- 1978. Ending, 1978. Uh, Elegant, bullies, long-haired bullies. There's elegantly a shot a <laughs> la Halloween. Elegantly shot. I, I, I do want to say one more thing about Fear No Evil. That the movie begins with the paintings, right? There's like these paintings of mm-hmm. Lucifer and the war in heaven and stuff with the voiceover of it. And it's very cool. The movie, the DP, who I guess has not done a lot of DP work outside of this it's he's mostly like a, a second unit guy which i think also the the dp of your movie is mostly a second unit guy is he i'll have to look into that but he was inspired by medieval paintings and he wanted oh. the, the film the his frames to to kind of resemble in some way medieval paintings and i think in a lot of ways that's successful Huh, uh, and yeah. there's a lot of bits, especially at the beginning with the big fight between Lucifer and the and the priest, that feel very Italian. That feel very... Right. It feels very Argento or Fulci. And that definitely tracks with, you know, uh, La Loja being from an Italian family, yeah. being Italian, like yeah. the Catholicism there as well. Like, yeah. I can see that all kind of making a nice... Yeah, and there's, you know, yeah, there's some gothic stuff in it. So, if you've not guessed... From the hints we gave you, Dan's the movie Dan chose was uh, Christine, John Carpenter's Christine, <laughs> one of my favorites, one of his favorite movies, one uh, of my favorite horror movies. Yeah, not not, not to like not yeah. to like overly subdivide, but no. like I think one of the reasons that it's one of my favorite horror movies uh, or just movies in general is is because I think it's really underappreciated. I think, mm-hmm. like, as a Carpenter film, I think it's very underappreciated. Yeah. And just in the horror genre, I think it's kind of underappreciated. And, yeah, it's just one of those ones that I kind of always go to bat for. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, you and I, we're friends, so we talk about movies a lot. And we I think we talk about Christine a lot. Yeah, I, I bring it up a lot for some reason. And <laughs> and it's, uh, I, I mean, my my I believe it feels like it's John Carpenter's last truly cinematic movie. Yeah. It's this, the last is, movie he directed that feels like he was trying to make something for the big screen. Yeah, that's 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 been one of my arguments for it too. It, Dean Cundy did not shoot it. Donald mm-hmm. A. Morgan shot yeah. it. But it feels 
like the last time he's trying to shoot something the way that he shot Halloween or the mm-hmm. thing or the fog or, you know, this kind of elegantly shot yeah. wide, you know, very widescreen Panavision, Panaglide, Wonners, you know, not even showing off Wonners, but just like letting a conversation play out in one mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of gliding in from, uh, you know, a, a wide shot to a close up on a character, yeah. you know, show me, you know, yeah, it's yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's just, um, I, I like pretty much anything I've seen by Carpenter. He's got a couple movies I'm not a big fan mm-hmm. of. I, I like Carpenter a lot, but I feel like Christine kind of gets ignored in this kind of weird place we're at now where, like, we want to go back and, and hail They Live well, we, and, yeah, you know, like these other kind of schlocky... We want to talk about the pre, you know, the thing and everything before or the... I don't even know uh, what to what to how to reference it necessarily because it's even Prince of Darkness I feel until very recently was kind of an ignored film and it would be yeah. like everyone's like oh Big Trouble in Little China they live yeah there's like this schlockier half t- and they're it's good schlock mm-hmm. you know like like schlock does not mean it's not good stuff yeah. you know but there's this kind of more fun tongue in cheek schlockier part of his resume that people have either rediscovered or always held on to that is totally valid and it's a yeah. lot of fun. Meanwhile, Memoirs of an Invisible Man still gets no love. Right. I think it's great. I haven't seen that one in a long time. But, it, <laughs> but like, uh, and, and maybe that's kind of like, you know, where I'm guilty in all of this, you know, but uh, but I feel like Christine kind of gets ignored. It gets, yeah, I agree. Because, you know, Halloween is already doing a lot of this type of filmmaking so well because the thing did it so well. And, and it's not as crazy yeah. as, you know, the events-wise. It's not as, quote-unquote, bonkers. Yeah, it's a pretty slow-burn movie. Yeah. You know, it doesn't. the car doesn't just... The car doesn't kill anyone, you yeah. know, on screen in its in its 1978 storyline until an hour into the film, <laughs> until it's over yeah. the halfway point. But it is consistently interesting and engaging with mm-hmm. good characters and good filmmaking and a great score, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, well, and a, a sparse score. It's a score. We yeah. that's the thing we were while we were watching them. We were, we were commenting on the fact that the score is so it's so he knows exactly when it's needed and when it's not. Yeah. And that's rare, and especially for you know someone like who at this point. Even at this point in his career, John Carpenter was that was a thing everyone knew about him. He scores his own movies. Yeah, you know, even even the thing which was scored by Ennio Morricone, like Carpenter, it feels it, like a Carpenter. It feels score. like a Carpenter score because he did his own stuff to it. Yeah, like, and this is a movie where it's it knows where to be silent. It yeah. knows where to like where a lack of score is better, and where you know, okay, it's fine to have it here because it's actually going to work here. Even in scenes where normally I would watch a film and be like, I don't think you need music here. This it works here because it's that it's even minimalist, even by Carpenter standards. Right. And we should like get into the, the the way that both of these films use music, but like just really quick for those of you who haven't seen Christine, which is a shame and you should, or, you know, haven't seen it in a while. I think one of the things that like has helped people kind of, I don't know, sectionalize it away from Carpenter's filmography in their minds or, or just kind of disregard it is that it's, you know, a Stephen King film and it's one of the better Stephen King films. Mm -hmm. And it's a Stephen King film Carpenter did because a different Stephen King film 
fell through. Fell well, through. Yeah, because he Firestarter fell through, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it was because, and he took Firestarter, and he took, well, actually, he made Christine after Firestarter fell through because the thing bombed, and he was like, I need to work again as yeah. soon as possible. The thing is that I think is interesting. I think they made uh, Christine for about $8 million. Mm-hmm. They were going to make Firestarter for like 20 something, and yeah. when they slashed the budget, uh, Carpenter had a pay or play deal, and he moved out. Mm-hmm. He, he dropped out of that, but he needed to keep working, so they made, I think it was for Paramount, but they made Christine for about $8 million on what was called a negative pickup, which is what, it, you know, once you explain it, it's what it sounds like. They make the movie. You know, they give you like kind of a promissory note, like we will buy this movie for $8 million, you know, if you go out and make it first. So you can take that to a bank, you can get a loan for $8 million against it, and you can go make the movie on that budget, and then Paramount will come in and pick up the negative. Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) thanks for the movie. We're going to put this in the trunk and we're going to move along. So, you know, that's uh, how they made... That that's how they made Christine. Christine was also made at the same time as the book was being released. Like there was not a huge like the book was not mm. out for a long time before Christine came out as a film. They they wrote the script and started putting the movie in production based on the pre-release of the book. They sold the rights before the book was even released. So they came out I think the same year, 1983. In any case, the, that's all just backgrounding. It's you know a killer car. We can get into the details of that when we talk yeah. about Arnie's yeah. arc, but. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I bring it up, the music thing, was because we talked about this with Fear No Evil. Yeah. Fear No Evil's got some interesting needle drops. Yeah, it does. And it really does. And and so does Christine. And Christine, they this is another thing that's impressive to though. me about the score, is that the score is doing all of this while navigating all of these interesting needle drops that are right. both diegetic and non-diegetic. And then you've got... And, and the, the score in Fear No Evil is definitely like... It's like poppy needle it's, drop fun high school stuff a lot of the time. Well, that's what the, that's the, yeah, that's sorry, the, the score. The, it's not the score. The, the, the soundtrack. The soundtrack. The, yeah, the popular music that's used in it. But its score is very orchestral and kind it's, of operatic. It's, 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 it's kind of operatic. And, yeah. It's kind of like good and evil swelling strings and horns and yeah. and, and rolling percussion. And But then there will be these songs that are also on the nose because Christine does some on the nose needle drops too. Totally. But there are some in Fear no evil that are just i mean the guy the boyfriend the, the bully pointing a gun at his girlfriend while the talking head psycho killer plays but that's that's the other thing that gets me about like fear no evil obscure and weird and kind of a mess that it is the soundtrack yeah it, it's you were saying sex that, pistols talking heads boomtown rats yeah uh, you were saying it has a hard time getting Ramones, re-releases be- because, because because of the music that's in it because yeah. it's all like to this day, still very popular music, yeah. you know, and it was very big, I'm sure, it, in its time, but it's almost bigger now because it's aged like wine, you know, in yeah. terms of our, our regard for these bands, you know, and their influence. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so it, that was one thing I was not expecting was to recognize. Yeah, to be like, wait, is that Patti Smith? Because this is a... That's Patti Smith. This is a fairly cheaply made $800,000, you know, like yeah. it, it's, you know, it, that's... That's not a small amount of money in 1981 to make a horror movie, but it's not no, it, a it, big studio film. No, this was yeah. this was independently made, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's they're still getting at least at that time licensing for the Sex Pistols and the Talking Heads yeah. and the Ramones and you know all of these other bands that even at that time were not unknown. Really, no, no, the Talking know? Heads had yeah, the Talking Heads were huge. Yeah. Already. So that that was an interesting thing that they did. But in those the soundtrack in that movie, the needle drop soundtrack moments are very 
kind of like poppy, you know, high school, mm-hmm. weird, fun kind of things. And, and they're it, in weird places. Yeah, they and tonally, like even if they're lyrically on the nose, tonally they're kind of strange sometimes. Mm-hmm. But in Christine, with the exception of, a, of, of probably the opening and closing cue, which are bad to the bone, yeah. you know, which is very <laughs> which fun to and tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. It was actually, I think the song had just come out. Like really? I, yeah, I think the song had also just come out. Huh. So that was kind of one of its first uses. Um, as tongue-in-cheek as it was, I think yeah. it was like still like just getting on the radio at wow. the time. But then the rest of the movie, the diegetic music, you know. It's um, all the car itself. It, the car's communicating. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a lot of fun. And then there are times where the di- the diegetic music is contemporary for the time covers yeah. of songs from the 50s. So you've got that Buddy Holly the, transition yeah. into a, a 1978 contemporary cover of yeah. uh what was it was the name of that song? But it but in any case there's a great moment yeah. where it's uh very elegant at the very beginning of the film. You know, you have Buddy Holly's version of this song mm-hmm. playing diegetically on the radio. It transitions non-diegetically on the same lyric into the cover version of it in 1978, which then transitions back into it coming from the radio diegetically within the yeah, scene. As, yeah. as the car is approaching the camera on that Z-axis in a very, like, okay, it's Don Morgan is the DP on this film, but a lot of his stuff is very Cundy feeling. Yeah, it, that's the thing, is I think it, it was a mistake I think I made a while ago thinking that Cundy had also shot this one because it feels very... Yeah. Carpenter and Cundy working mm-hmm. together. There's um, and so even though it isn't Cundy anymore, it it is why it goes back to what you and I were talking about, where it feels like the last time Carpenter was making cinema, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. a film, and, yeah. and and not at all to disregard the films that have come since. In his, no, because I like them. Yeah, yeah I love. They're them. a blast. You Prince know? of Darkness is one of my favorites of his. Yeah, he's done like let's be fair, a lot of great work, yeah. and I'm not at all saying that Christine is necessarily preferable to all of these other things that people love. But it should at least get the same due. Yeah, yeah. it really kind of gets ignored, and, and it's just so beautifully and elegantly yeah. shot. The the tone is great. You you know, it's just got a wonderful tone to the whole thing. So, the places that you saw the 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 recommendation points. Well, there's that. There's the the fact that we transition. We cover 20 years of history. Right. 20 years of time in Christine in that very succinct way with just the songs. So the opening happens in one place, and then 20 years later, you've yeah, got your pickup, which is that. not entirely different than Fear No yeah, Evil. Yeah, you've got that in Fear No Evil, too. It's just that in Fear No Evil, they do it with, uh, you know, mom and dad fighting yeah. over the shot of a house. And in Christine, they do it with a song. <laughs> so, yeah, so each one's got a cold open set about 20 years prior that's important to the story. Yeah. And, and that cold open contains something of a blood rite. And in both Fear No Evil yeah. and Christine, there are at least two victims in yep. it. Because what happens in Fear No Evil is you've got the priest stumbling upon the bodies in that castle. And then right. the woman falls. And then there's Lucifer. And then Lucifer dies. And then his soul, that's a rite. You yeah. know, there's a ritual going on in the castle. And then the ritual, that ritual gets negated. And there's a new ritual of Lucifer's spirit traveling into this baby that's born. Right. And then... There's something with the baby, uh, his baptism. Yeah. His baptism. There's blood. That was a really cool scene, uh, too. Oh, God, yeah. that scene is so great. Blood yeah. just starts coming out of the baby, yeah. out of, like, the <laughs> baptismal well, you yeah. know. Um, and in, in Christine, you have the one guy getting his, the, the inspector worker, getting his hand slammed in the in the trunk, and then you've got the other guy that gets killed by the car. Because he, he, because he, he drops his cigar ash. 
Yeah, on, on to on the, the seat. seat. Which yeah. is funny because if you listen again, it's the Buddy Holly song, and the lyrics are, "I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be. Yeah. You're gonna give your love to me." Yeah, she doesn't intend to kill him, and then he drops his ash on the seat. And it's like, oh, and buddy. And then, you know, the next time we see this guy, he's dead in the car. So, yeah. like, you know, it's interesting because she she's already kind of searching for yeah. her love. And uh, and, and this, this dude could have been it if he had but just nope. been a little bit more mindful with that uh, cigar of his. But, yeah, like, and then it jumps ahead 20 years. And then we meet Arnie and Dennis. Yeah. And Dennis is your slightly more likable version of, like, you know, just a straight-up 70s high school jock. But uh, Arnie is the main character. And Arnie and Lucifer are your kind of one of the things that you saw as a pairing across these movies, right? Because they're very similar. And they both, you know, Arnie more directly, but they both have these kind of shifts Mm -hmm. in personality and outward appearance Mm -hmm. because of it and how they conduct themselves as they embrace these things. And it's, I mean, it's clearer with Arnie, again, like you said, it's clearer with Arnie because it's like, you see him going from this very sweet, very like... Passive, nerdy. Yeah, passive, nerdy. Like, he's goofy looking, I guess, by by certain standards, but he's not like, you know, he doesn't look like Andrew John does on the stairways while I am... Antichrist plays. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not the name of the song, but you know. But he's like, you like him. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. like him. Ar- Arnie, Arnie he's is. Embar- he's easily embarrassed. But he's sweet. He's smart and he's funny. Yeah. You know, like yeah. he's got a good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And you understand. Here's the thing I never actually question the relationship between Dennis and Arnie when I watch Christine. I never wonder why they're friends. Yeah, because there are movies where you've got the popular football player and he's friends with the nerd, and you're like, I don't see these guys How being friends. How did this happen? In Christine, it totally works. You get it. You're yeah. like, yeah, these guys like each other. They're friends. And Arnie is like, his problem is he just doesn't have any confidence. Yeah. It's literally his only problem. Yeah. I mean, aside from his parents being fucking yeah, you know, draconian. This, the super domineering characters yeah. you tend to get, <clears throat> along with the super domineering bullies you tend to get when you go into a Stephen King universe. But what is holding him back from himself is not a lack of even social grace, really. Right. Uh, it's just that he has no confidence. Yep. And then he uh, falls in love with this car that needs some repair. And as he fixes the car up, he kind of fixes himself up and the car kind of fixes him up. So so the car is, depending on whether you read the book or you, you read yeah, the movie, it's go. a different yeah. thing. <laughs> so in the book, the car is this kind of evil feminine energy mm-hmm. that, that kind of repairs itself and seduces the person that takes it on. But in the book also, the last person who used to drive the car around, the former owner, George LeVay, I think his name was, is also possessing Arnie over the course of the book. And Arnie is himself and kind of sweet and nerdy again when George LeVay is off driving Christine around killing Arnie's enemies, you mm-hmm. know, or Christine's enemies. But, you know, he is becoming more and more George LeVay because LeVay is taking Arnie over and possessing him directly. Yeah. The movie kind of dispenses with most of the LeVay side of that and just kind of treats it like Christine is this feminine energy that uh, is like got the supernatural evil to it. And 
is in love with Arnie and Arnie is in love with her. Arnie does start to take on some of LaVey's traits, but you don't get the sense that, that he is being possessed by LaVey so much yeah. as he is just kind of being in, infected with the energy of this car, that it's a toxic relationship. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like, which, you know, the fet- which came first, the fetishizing of the automobile in American culture or calling people shitters? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Came. And that's really the only way it's really, I think, expressed in the movie. Yeah, he just is that he starts calling people shitters. Yeah, which he, is a word and, that we know. And uh, you know, they said mimicking the other line that Levey said. You know, best smell in the world. <clears throat> oh, except for maybe pussy. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, like, those are the only two kind of crossover points. But which it, is just ew. Come on. Yeah, guys. it's it's such a creepy line. But but man, they both kind of nail it. Yeah, um, they, they really do. <laughs> but but you know, like in the movie, and since we're dealing with the movie, we'll stick with this notion of like Christine is this feminine evil energy in a car Mm -hmm. and she and Arnie are kind of in love and she demands that kind of love from whoever is driving her, you know, Mm -hmm. whoever owns her and she kind of owns them back. But Arnie develops confidence as people tend to do in American car culture when you get a good car or when you are in a relationship and, you know, you've you've kind of discovered your self-worth because you're finding it through someone else. Again, this is a toxic relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's not a good one. Yeah, this isn't how you should do these things, guys, but it is how it happens sometimes. Yeah, it's the, the parallel between Lucifer kind of shifting and changing how they present themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and Arnie doing the same, becoming this kind of, he starts out as this kind of like, you know, he's, he's a nerd. He's got the glasses. He's got glasses. He's got like a, a button shirt. Yeah. The the ill-fitting jacket, ill-fitting pants. And he's shuffling around with his shoulders down. And then he just becomes this like slick, good looking greaser, starts wearing his contact lenses, you know, and, uh, man, Keith Gordon plays the hell out of this character. His, His performance in that is so good. I really just want to shake his hand one day. It, there's so many layers to it. It's an incredible. He's performance. doing a lot of. He's doing a lot of great work, and and there's there's like there's a really good range in it. And that's one of the things that we were talking about when we were watching the film itself. Is that you know he's I think the highlight of the film, but but also everyone's good in it. Yeah, there's not a bad performance in it. Nobody breaks the reality of this. And like when you see a lot of 80s, this was made in 83, it takes place in 78. But when you see a lot of these like 70s and 80s, particularly 80s horror films, you know, what you see is bad acting a lot of the Mm -hmm. time. You know, not Mm -hmm. all the time, but a lot of the time. And in this case, like even when you've got a 35-year-old playing a bully, which is a a, a wonderfully, I don't know, common trope, even into the 90s, you know. I mean, even now, honestly. Yeah. Like, I still watch stuff where I'm like, that guy's not in high school. But, like, it's, it's almost comical in this film how, I mean, he might even be 25 and you shouldn't have cast him. You know, like, he's great. Yeah. But this guy looks like he's, he's you know, three years away from 40. Yeah, he looks like he's in his, he's had two divorces. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's 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 a mountain of a dude. But in, in, in any case, the, the performances are all really good. I mean, you've got Harry Dean Stanton in this movie. Yeah. He shows up with, like, 45 minutes left to go. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> And he still makes his mark. You've got Robert Prosky Robert Prosky as Darnell, as who's Darnell. incredible. Yeah. And then Robert's Blossom as as LeVay. Yeah, this, this, the South Bend Shovel Slayer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As, as LeVay. <laughs> 
Yes. And I mean, like, just the, the incredible, like, character actor casting, mm-hmm. along with uh, just, you know, the casting of, of, of your young leads. And then who plays um, the mother? She's... Oh, she's really good, too. She's great yeah. and horrific. And that's, like, she's been in other stuff, and I can't remember yeah, her name I, right now, and I'm not holding my phone in front of me to check. But, like, yeah. but yeah, just it's one of those movies where everybody's good, and it improves the quality of the film mm-hmm. a great deal in a way that I don't think people are thinking about or talking about when they're watching a horror movie yeah. about high school students in peril well, in the 80s. And I've been guilty of this, and I think that a number, like... A, a lot of the time, what you hear about Christine, and I've said this myself, is the like, oh, you know, it doesn't have a third act, or it doesn't have a second act. It has, right, a, it has right. a first act that's really long, and then it just jumps to the third act that feels kind of truncated for some reason, and right. there's no second act. And it's not true. There is. It's just kind of, some of it falls into the first act, and some of it falls into the third act. Yeah. And there's a there's a few scenes that feel that still feel off to me. Yeah, totally. Um, like, sequence-wise, where when Arnie comes to see... Dennis. Dennis in the in hospital. The hospital the first time. Is it the first time? It's the first time. Yeah, because he's... He's already been on the date. He's already, you know, got the, the cars fixed up. He's he's looking cool. Yeah. And he's saying shitters. And he's kind of being shitty. But he also then, like, slips back into... Arnie. Arnie. Being yeah. Arnie. And you get to see again, like, oh, yeah, that's why we like this guy. He's not all... He's not gone totally gone yet. yet. And then you watch him go back in the same scene into it again. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is great because it's highlighting his performance. Yeah. But it also... I don't know, with the scene that came right before and the scene that comes right after, it feels like, wait, there's something missing here. And it's very possible. There's like, I think, 20, 25 minutes of deleted yeah, and scenes. and I still haven't seen those, and I need to see them. They're really good, but the, I can't think of too many that I would try to put back into the film. Yeah. There's only, that like, they do address the big problem that you and I have with the film, which is... Most of them, I remember really just filling out character stuff more. There isn't a whole bunch of Christine stuff, really, that I remember. It's more of, I think, Arnie, but more of Lee and Dennis Mm -hmm. and kind of building their relationship. And like you and I were talking about when we were watching the movie, I think the thing is the structure of the book... It's very clearly a three-act structure to me as a film and as a book. Mm-hmm. And part of that is made really clear by the shifts and points of view, for better or worse. The book starts with Dennis's point of view, switches to Arnie's point of view when Dennis is in the hospital, mm-hmm. switches back when Dennis is out of the hospital, and goes back to Dennis's point of view as he tries to deal with the car, you know, and mm-hmm. Arnie. But there's a lot of stuff missing in that transition from second to third act. Yeah, because it, you can't really do that with film right, the same it, way. And the, and the film does kind of do it, but you lose a lot of the development between Lee and Dennis, mm. you know, and some of those scenes are on the cutting room floor, and they are good scenes on the on the Blu-ray, but they wouldn't work if you well. Were to, yeah, because yeah, there was a moment, and I'm... I'm kind of semi remembering this because it's been a little while since I watched it, but there's this, there's a deleted scene that is also in the book where Lee and Dennis are at like a burger stand in the car and they're talking about how they're going to deal with Christine and Arnie kind of pulls up behind them in Christine and sees them kiss and gets really jealous and, you know, and, and drives off. And from there, you, you know that they have to deal with Christine and Arnie together. That is a good scene for the development of Dennis and Lee's relationship, which is the thing that feels the most undercooked. Like I've always kind of had this weird thing in the movie where it's like, Oh, 
So the third act starts with a phone call. We yeah. need to talk, we need about, to talk Christine, about Christine. You yeah. know, and the two of them sit on a couch together and say, "No, you go first. It's yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's awkward. It's not great staging or writing. It's not really well, how you should handle something that not, expositional. It's not what you where you want to see that because this is a film that in a lot of ways handles so much else so well, so well. And you have the scene where to me it was always like I would have liked to have seen more of Arnie withdrawing from Dennis mm-hmm. because there's that scene where Dennis goes up to get Arnie to go to a movie and Arnie's like fuck you I'm going to work and they and last time they were in a scene together everything was fine yeah and Arnie's mom hated Dennis and now Arnie's mom is like do, can you get through to him right and he's like I don't see him much anymore and there's a part of me that's like see I need to see more of that there was like a three-week jump between yeah. when he got the car mm-hmm. and this moment and, and really all we saw was him working on it in that time. Yeah, and it know? was and that's pretty early in the movie too. Yeah. And so it does do these time jumps like that where do things do feel lost. I don't remember if there are deleted scenes there. I think that three week jump might have always been there, but there yeah. might have been other scenes that softened it. But to me it's it's if you've already done that then we don't need to see the phone call. You know what I mean? You can just yeah. jump to Dennis and Lee somewhere talking about it. Yeah, or, you know, like what I would have liked to have seen, and this is not so much an editing fix, mm-hmm. but like, you know, I feel yeah. like the fixes would be rewrites. They, yeah, would, yeah, they exactly. wouldn't be what you yeah. take out you or leave in. editing, yeah. Because when you and I were watching it, you know, there was that... There's that great scene. It's a great performance, but Keith Gordon is chewing the most possible scenery when he's driving that car on, I think, New Year's Eve with with Dennis. And you see this expression. You see see his mania, and you see Dennis's reaction to it. And the very next scene is, like, cut to him carving Darnell's tonight into Into Christine's hood. hood. And I love that cut because... It really allows you to just kind of see where Dennis is at. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, decision made. This is what I have to do. Yeah. But on the other side of it, it feels a little abrupt. And yeah. that's because the diner scene, the, the the burger stand scene I talk about where, where Arnie sees them together mm-hmm. used to happen in between these scenes. And I, I feel like that would not be a good place to put that. Right. Because it, we already know by then. Like, you can't go from Arnie's performance in that scene. Right. And then go down to, well, now he's mad that, that yeah. Lee has left Arnie for Dennis. And, and it might he's help. He's that already. Yeah, it might help Lee and Dennis's development. But it undercuts Arnie, who yeah. is more important. And it muddles the motivation for why. It, it muddles the motivation for the showdown. Yeah, well, you can't leave. Again, Keith Gordon's performance in that scene. Where you've seen where Arnie's stakes are now. Yeah. you ha- There's nowhere to go from there but the showdown. And he also says pretty clearly in that scene with Dennis that he doesn't really care about Lee. Well, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like he, you know, yeah. you go to the next scene and, you and believe he's him. mad That's about the other Lee. Thing. It's, yeah. You don't feel like he's lying when he says right. it. You, you feel like, oh, no, that, for sure. Well, also, like, you know, Dennis deciding to go after... Christine and Arnie in that scene to go after Christine to save Arnie in that scene makes sense and it's powerful and it's undiluted by a love triangle. Yeah. You know, whereas if you had if you had left the other scene in, now it's like Oh, well, it's a love triangle thing. Arnie isn't even fully... He's not fully uh, taken over by this car. He's he's upset about a love triangle now. He's upset about losing his girl. It it takes the thrust of the showdown away from having to stop this evil car and puts it back in the realm of, like, petty high school, you know, love triangle stuff. Or at least mixes that in there in a way that's unnecessary and dilutes the kind of main thrust of the the final act, so... Which is, I think, another thing in Fear No Evil, I like. 
like is that there's that weird seduction thing, that dream yeah. that Julie has about Andrew. Yeah. Where he's like seducing her and it's all part of Lucifer trying to just tempt an angel away again. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's like you can't go back to the high school stuff after that. Yeah. Like you have to leave it where it is. Like I I don't disagree with most of the things they took out of the movie, but but it does leave the movie mm-hmm. with a few things that feel missing. You yeah. know, um, yeah. and and yeah, the third act of Christine. Not calling it a bad third act, but it probably is the weakest part of the movie. Yeah, because it's again, it's it is abrupt. Yeah, it's a little quick, and it's also where you know we talked about this too. It's it's where the budget and the technology to shoot a really kick-ass car showdown yeah. starts to strain against what was possible with $8 million in 1983. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you know, yeah. um, you can only destroy and tear up so many cars. You can only drive it so fast mm-hmm. and maneuver it so well in a space that confined. And you can only make a giant caterpillar piece of equipment, you know, construction <laughs> equipment. You can only make it do so many interesting things yeah, in a space yeah. like that. Like yeah, it's, it's, and so it, it, this movie chooses to do one of those things for a long time yeah (laughs) but it it also does feel kind of satisfying there like in a weird way well there's definitely there's definitely a kind of a weird pseudo sexual component to Mm -hmm. you know christine being crushed slash mounted by the weird caterpillar bucket rig yeah which was in the book named petunia um, which is fun Um, fun. but uh, in any case i forgive it for its ability to only be good and not great in its third act when it's straining against certain things and it has certain choices to make. And I just think it's a fairly under-celebrated piece of Carpenter's work and Stephen King's work, you know. Um, it, I think it is one of the best Stephen King movies, uh, movie adaptations. Yeah, I love most Stephen King movie adaptations. Yeah, you're a little less discerning about it. Yeah, or, or that's I, fair. Like, I even like Graveyard Shift. I, ha- I know people shit on Graveyard Shift. I haven't seen that one recently enough to have an opinion, but I just feel like, you know, there, there are Stephen King movies that are fun because they're fun. Mm-hmm. And then there are Stephen King movies that are legitimately good. The Dead Zone. You know, the, the Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery. The original the Pet, Pet Cemetery, The Shining, you know, um, Christine. Misery, you know, but then there's, you know, the Langoliers and, you know, it, it, you, start getting in, you start getting into uh, into some of his uh, TV territory, you know. Um, Even a lot of the TV stuff I like. I like Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot and It, and it. are both I really great, the, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think series. we probably just named my top 10 list right there, you know, yeah. um, for, for Stephen King adaptations. But I just, I feel like Christine gets ignored. I say that a lot on this podcast. Feel free to cut it out. But like... <laughs> no, it's fine. Know. I'm just going to count how many times you say it. Yeah, you get a little ding noise in there and you can yeah. sum it up in the bumper at the end. But... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I wanted to pair it with something, you know, to see if I could find an undiscovered gem that and pairs I, nicely uh, with Christine. And, uh, you failed me. And I failed you. <laughs> so do you. I mean, do you genuinely, like, so how do you, because I know that I say it a lot, but do you feel like there's a better, you feel like there's a better one, right? A better pairing yeah. to, to Christine? Probably. Yeah. Uh, but but they would be more obvious. Like Wheels mm-hmm. of Terror yeah. would have been interesting, but that would also pair well with the other movie that I want you to do for me. Yeah, um, it actually might pair with the other movie better. On, and, well, a little more on the nose, but and and I think but this is a matter of taste. I think I was looking for more on the nose. Well, it's it's funny because like again, I, I stretched so far like that I didn't even realize 
w- until we were watching it that I was like, I could have just grabbed a cursed object movie. Like, it didn't have to be a car. Yeah, or I like another... I could have found, you know, Amityville 1992. Or a Stephen King movie I hadn't considered. Yeah, or... but instead I'm like, what is a movie where a weird nerd becomes an evil asshole because of some pact with something unholy? Right. Uh, with To different, to varying degrees of... <laughs> you know, and, and like... Part of me would have loved it to have uh, been a little more obvious because you know when you when you're looking for a double feature, sometimes you kind of want to counter program and have fun with it mm-hmm. and mess with expectations. But I think a lot of people go to double features because they want the same itch scratched, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. I was kind of like, I want to find another hidden gem that gives me that same sense of satisfaction I get from Christine, where I feel like Christine mm-hmm. is underappreciated and really well made. Gotcha. And like, you know, you're not just looking for on the nose needle drops and, you know, <laughs> Hey, sometimes in America, smashing up a car is as sacrilegious as putting a cow skull on a statue of Christ. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, as obvious as those comparisons those are, are. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, like, so for the next one, because the funny thing is the other one that I've chosen, and we won't say what it is, I guess, is is it would have paired with Christine, all right. Yeah, it would You know, like, but maybe but not as well like as I'm other not, things. Yeah. The other thing is I feel like that's the kind of thing that people program. Like, totally. And, and I don't want to do, I want to be You don't want to go so obvious with yeah. it. Well, my, my, my challenge to you is to find that happy medium now because I it was fun doing this yeah but like since since I get like a do-over you definitely we're get we're we're doing a do-over all right yeah I'm I'm gonna have fun with that though but it's great because then I get to do this with two of my favorite movies (laughs) that are weirdly similar and both of them I think are Mm underappreciated and uh, having the opportunity to, to like gush about Christine has been really fun for me because I just don't feel like good. it gets that. You That's, know? I'm glad. I'm look. We're we're gonna change everyone's minds about Christine. We're gonna bring Christine back into the right. It deserves to be. It really does. It deserves to be. I agree. It's uh, I, it, it's like <laughs> top five Carpenter for me. You know, really top five. Oh yeah. I mean, what what else is in that top five? Oof. I don't tend to do lists very well, so yeah, I really set either. myself up for failure. But like Halloween's in there. Yeah. The thing is in there. Yeah. Uh, Christine is in there. I should have just said, what are your other two? Because obviously yeah. Halloween and the thing are yeah. going to be in there. I, I say this having like not refreshed my Carpenter in a while. But I don't know. I love the fog. Um, yeah, the, I don't fog know if, is, the fog is a top five. Yeah, I don't know if that's like me being nostalgic for it or not. Because it's been a little while since I've seen it. But probably no, the it's, fog. it's brilliant. <laughs> I'll just say, put your fears to rest. It's brilliant. <laughs> and this is maybe a bit of a cop out. But I feel like whatever occupies the fifth position because i'd say christine's probably top four based on how Mm -hmm. sure i am on the rest of that and unsure i am about a fifth one gotcha uh so i would say it's probably top four but the fifth position is probably just dependent on whatever i'm feeling at that time because his his filmography is so varied that it could be like well i could want something a little more schlocky and fun or i could want something a little darker and weirder and grittier you know like i could be in a or you know you could just be in a escape from new york mood or you can be in in the mouth of madness mood or whatever and go for something completely yeah. or Prince of Darkness mood so or vamp yeah. like not that I would no, put it anywhere there nobody's, nobody's in a vampire mood nobody's putting vampires in the top like, 5 but you could be in a mood to watch the vampire watch vampires even if it's not going to be in your top 5 yeah. like it's a different thing so yeah top 4 <laughs> and and I put for me I enjoy Christine more than the fog so top okay. 3 top 3 but yeah but I you know that's that's a very specific to my taste I'm not going to push it on anyone else to like create the same <laughs> positioning for christine yeah that's fair i'm glad we did this because i'm glad one i i'm always happy to watch 
Christine with you. Oh man, likewise. And thank you. I, I got a shout out to uh, to Andy here because he's the one who bought me that Christine Blu-ray that we watched. <laughs> Even though I, I had already owned like the nine ninety nine Blu-ray of it, you know, for my own rewatches. Andy for my birthday bought me is it the indicator? Indi- indicator, yeah. The indicator Blu-ray for it, which is great. Great yeah. great transfer, great sound, has some great special features on it. Well, it's all just because I was getting myself the William Castle box set, volume one. I can't look, I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> I'm not getting both of them. And and I had Christine and I was like, Hey, you know whose birthday this would be perfect for? And it is. And I've always just felt like you deserved to have it, even before I was shopping for myself. Ah, uh, thank you. Uh, I wanted to get you the limited edition when it was released, but it, it's, it was already sold out. So. Well, thank you very. Thank you anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> thank you for making it possible to have you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And let's. Yeah, I, I can't wait to do the next one. Yeah, we'll be doing it again. Yesterday, when I was walking around the park to get some exercise. I re-listened to our Halloween roundtable on people we oh, know. Oh, really? And, God, it, I and I was like, to that. it was that moment where I was like, that's right. That's where I met Andy and Robert was on yeah. a Halloween roundtable podcast. That's true. And so. I, I don't know. It's it's weird to do this with somebody that I, you know. Yeah. I'm friends with to the point where like, I think I see you and hang out with you more than uh, anyone else uh, that's not my partner. Right, right. Um, Likewise. So it's like. I don't know how to end a podcast with you. Like, I don't know how to be like, thanks for coming on. I and mean, then, I'm like, just, we're going to just hang out the next couple hours. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. So. Let's go hang out. You know, I, I still have every intention of getting pizza after this. If you want to come with me, I might, I might do that. But um, uh, anyway, yeah. Thanks for ha- it's it's been fun to be here. This is the first time I've been on your podcast since since the Halloween roundtable, round which, which was, was a different podcast. And it was 2013. Wow. Is there anything you, this is okay, so, the oh, get to, plug. Like, plug you get something? to plug something? What man, do you got right now? N- right now, uh, man, I don't know. It's it's hard to plug anything right now. Yeah. Um, I I have a a show called L.A. Macabre. Yes, you do. But I don't know where you can find it at the moment, except in the Netherlands. Do we have if we have any listeners in the Netherlands? Yeah, check it out on Horrify in the Netherlands. It's an app very much like Shutter. Uh, it's a platform. Uh, there are two seasons of the show. And, and they're both great, and you need to watch them. Ah, oh, thanks, Andy. Uh, <laughs> it's it's basically, you know, what if some documentary filmmakers pissed off a modern-day Manson family? You know, first season's found footage, second season is not. But yeah, it's not in the U.S. right now. Perhaps we'll get to update you with something mm-hmm. but uh, in the future. But right now, it is only playing in the Netherlands. We are still looking for distributors uh, in other countries and in the U.S., um, so hopefully sometime this year it'll be available maybe on Amazon or something. But right now it's not available in the U.S. So uh, feel free to cut that plug out. I'm not going to. Yeah, well. Because if we have, I don't know if we have listeners in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, I don't know. And if we do, you know, they yeah. should know about Horrify and they should watch L.A. Macabre. Well, I, I hope we have some Netherlands uh Man, what do you say for somebody who lives in the Netherlands? I don't know how to. I think yeah. it's Netherlanders. They're Dutch, right? Yeah. You know what was really stupid is I was just there and I did hear them refer to themselves and I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, well. In any case, I I hope we have... (laughs) Sorry, guys. I hope we have an audience in the Netherlands who will check it out. Uh, I was just there. It was a lot of fun. Um, 
beautiful, beautiful place, uh, really cool people. And I apologize for not knowing how to correctly identify you all. But uh, yeah, check it out on Horrify. And if it's released in the US, I will try to find a way to get on Andy's podcast again and let you know. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely have you on again. Because <laughs> I, I already owe you a mulligan. We got to do another, we got to do a do over. All right, thanks, Dan. Thank you. Say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Class, Class deceased. deceased. There we go.